Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by Assistant Editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. Scott, happy to be here, pal. Are you? (laughs) Wow. That's refreshing. Sarah Libby, Managing Editor, hello. Hello. How are you? Also quite happy to be here. Oh, wow. What a joy. Delighted. You guys are just (laughs) joyful. All right, we've got a show today I, I'm excited about. We Finally, we've taken in the election results. Uh, I, I was delighted to see a, a tweet from Sarah Jacobs, newly minted member of Congress. She goes to orientation today, and she says, tweet, who was taking bets on how long it would take for someone con- uh, before someone confused me for a staffer? If you picked the very first moment of orientation, congratulations, you win. I responded to her. I said, I want to know every detail of the moment somebody went up to a member of Congress and was like, hey, who do you work for? (laughs) I felt that deep in my bones, like the time at PolitiFest when somebody asked me if I was one of the high school volunteers. (laughs) I was like, you're very, very close. I'm the editor of this organization. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh well i'd like the thing though is a- as demeaning as that might have been to to sarah she got to respond by telling them that it- she in fact was a member of congress so it, it, as it's a bad thing but then she gets the 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 joy i imagine of of making somebody shrivel into a that's why i want every life. detail that's the moment i want i don't want to yeah. hear the initial confusion i want the deep awkwardness of the moment after. Like, exactly. I guess what I should say is somewhere else there's some person who's slinking home to his wife to explain the most mortifying thing that's ever happened to him. Yeah. And then he's going to go Google what, <laughs> which what member we... of Congress this was. He's going to be like, oh, yeah, no, she's got a bajillion dollars to bury me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 and there's no question it was a man, right? I mean, I guess it could have no been. Question. No question. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. I mean, if we're taking bets, it's it's just <laughs> very high. All right. We have a great show today coming up. We are going to talk about San Diego's new mayor-elect, Todd Gloria. All he has to do now is run the city in the worst economy and situation we could possibly imagine. No problems there. We'll go over the first decisions that the new mayor has to make. And one of those things is a contract that could be delayed for San Diego's sort of rights to deliver electricity. San Diego Gas and Electric has owned the right to put up power lines and manage them over city streets for, what, like 50 years? And that uh, is uh, not guaranteed to continue. 20 more year contract on the docket. But Council President Georgette Gomez, who's leaving her post Maybe stirring the energy pot on her way out. And we'll get into the County Board of Supervisors now has a Democratic majority. What could it do? How could it use that majority? What where it's standing in its way? We're going to talk about all of that as it relates, especially to countywide law enforcement and potential standoff with the sheriff. We learned a little bit about how that might work and not work. 
in coming weeks. So it's official, Barbara Bree this week, after waiting quite a while, finally decided to concede the race for mayor. And, you know, there's been a tradition, it seems like, or at least around here, that the candidates for office give their best speeches after they lose. Uh, Nathan Fletcher, Carl DeMaio, lots of great speeches at that concession. This time, though, um, Barbara Bree conceded but dropped a few bombs on her way out. Now that I've had four years at City Hall, I understand the inner workings of the building. And I will say quite frankly that when I started to run for mayor, I believed there was incompetence at City Hall. As the campaign progressed, I became more aware of what I will quite frankly call a culture of corruption. And it was the special interests in this town who have benefited from this over the years, who spent a lot of money uh, beating me. But that means that now officially, Todd Gloria, Assemblyman, is San Diego's next mayor. He's got a lot of decisions to make. I think the first is just who he's going to have run his office and run the city. There's sort of two big jobs open, Andy. One of them is chief operating officer. So we used to have a city manager who was like the manager of all the employees of the city. That became the mayor, but the mayor has traditionally hired a COO, a chief operating officer, to kind of run the bureaucracy. And that uh, position has been held the last uh, two people in there have been more like political staffers, uh, Chris Michelle and now Amy Fawcett for, for Mayor Kevin Faulkner. There's an obvious need for an actual top manager. And uh, we don't know who he's going to pick, but it's a big choice. I think the choice comes down basically to like what he's trying to decide when he puts it together is the same thing that I think everybody has really been trying to decide since the strong mayor's form of government shift is how do you make the city hall bureaucracy responsive to your office? How do you how do you marry those two things together? Um, and I would venture that no mayor has quite figured it out yet, that that we still are seem to be in a situation where the city hall structure, the departments of the city, uh, technically report directly to the mayor. This is something you'll hear often said about city hall, that staff works for the mayor. A staff proposal is the mayor's proposal. And that yet there's some distance between them and that it doesn't always feel like staff is doing precisely what the mayor wants to do or what the mayor wants to do. He's not able to really effectively push it through the city hall structure and that when you pick your chief of staff who runs your office and the COO which want, runs the the city hall bureaucracy you're trying to put the pe the two people in place that will uh make that happen effectively yeah exactly and i think uh you know we saw remember bob filner mayor he decided you know i'm in charge wow look i'm in charge of every city employee i can just tell him like don't go inspect the building. Don't go do things you're supposed to do. And instead, I'll call the building owner and say, give me more donations or something. He was like very direct. Um, and that's, yeah, trying to stream like that has been has been the difficult job of a lot of mayors. He was also very direct, but also created like these weird bottlenecks where only he was allowed to approve things and 
authorize people to speak. And so it was like a weird mix of being very direct with being so hands-on that it caused everything to grind to a halt, which I feel like maybe you don't want to do. Or like one thing I remember specifically was like a uh, community planning group meeting in Carmel Valley over the Juan Paseo project that the newly elected mayor unexpectedly showed up at and basically like kicked it into a protest. <laughs> Meanwhile, like his own Bob Filder was so fun for like three weeks. So yeah, fun but, and weird. But meanwhile, his own planning staff was like in charge of actually working through the project and giving it a fair hearing before the city council and analyzing its effects. And like they're doing that very soberly in the same meeting that their boss is standing up and is like, these people are literally trying to murder residents on the streets. It was uh, it, it was quite quite a juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, and then the second role that Todd Gloria has to pick right now is his chief of staff. This is more of like his political chief, the person in charge of his top leadership positions, his communications people, all those things. And that's a big job in itself. It sort of is the translator of his priorities for all of these different jobs. It's the community, you know, you call, if you're mad at Todd, Gloria, the mayor, you're probably going to call this person and let him know if you um, know that person's number. And uh, famously, you know, that person will start getting a ton of Christmas cards and boy, you're great (laughs) messages (laughs) because they turn into a very powerful person very quickly. And, um, you know, that that role, how he picks those roles will be really important um, in the next little while. And we heard, heard a few things about how that might go. But, you know, uh, this is going to be different than anything we've seen since Bob Filner obviously left. We uh, sure uh, Barbara Bray's not in the mix. Oh, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Yes, good one. Yeah, that was the what was that? That was the Union Tribune's uh, editorial. That yeah, she's really good. Maybe she should be chief. <laughs> the idea of Barbara Bree serving in that most trusted role for Todd Gloria it was is um, a bit naive. <laughs> yeah, didn't go over great. No, it did not go over well. But then the then there's the question of just you know all the things he wants to do. He wants to dispatch with you know small problems like scooters and such. He described. You did a great story, Andy, about his big city vision, and he wants to focus on these big issues: infrastructure, homelessness. But over all, all of it is this this gigantic deficit. Uh, you know, the city has three sources of income revenue. Property taxes, which seem pretty stable, sales taxes, which do not seem stable, and then tourism taxes, which are gone. Like, they're just gone. And that's not changing. And without a big bailout of the federal government, you know, you can dream all you want about big city things. That stops right there. Yeah, and he's not naive of that. He he did, he did um, or he's not blind to that, I should say. He he, he mentioned specifically that, that he recognizes that the city is in a, a very tough situation and that the first order of business is going to be some sort of uh, stabilization really before you can enact any big major agenda items. Um, And yeah, the other part about it is like dealing with that might not be all that ideological. Uh, um, I mean, I suppose you could come up with a way in which uh, your response to the pandemic might be uh, like vastly different than what Mayor Faulkner's was. But it, it also sort of seems like it's mostly just triage. I, I should also add, and 
he made this point in in my story and I um but I've seen some other people sort of criticizing him in the story as that like these smaller problems that that these that these are important to specific people. Uh what he said to me was I'm not saying that these things don't matter or that we shouldn't deal with them. I'm saying let's just deal with them and free up the bandwidth to to then deal with something else. Yeah, that that was what struck me most about your story too is that it he seemed like he was trying to take pains not to diminish um you know the impact those things have on people's everyday lives which they of course do. It really animated Barbara Bree's campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. because they do have a big impact on people's lives. Um, but he was saying like, let's solve it. Like, let's deal with it and move on. And I mean, you know, I can't write or edit another story about how this time there's really a vacation rentals deal. (laughs) Like I can't do it. Yeah. Well, I've learned my lesson about any of (laughs) any sort of certainty around this thing is finally being resolved. Uh, speaking of which got some big news on Barrio Logan coming. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that would never happen. Um, it, it may be instructive here to to look back when he was the mayor. That that was a period, um, for better or worse, we had our criticisms about whether there was such thing as an interim mayor. Um, I, I will pay you to say I mayor. I, I, I won't. Um, <laughs> but... There was that was a period in the city where it seemed like suddenly a bunch of things that had been moving at a glacial pace sped up into a a, a typical you know big city pace. Um, and so if if there's any way to to get back on that sort of footing where you just pick things up and you say what are we going to do about this? How do we deal with it and move forward? Uh, you know that that would be a welcome change. Yeah, and it was clear that like the special circumstances of that moment kind of gave him some wind, you know, beneath his wings that he could help push some of those things through really, really quickly. But we're we're in a really special circumstance. And so, you know, if he's able to kind of utilize that to his advantage. I think there was also a really uh, unique circumstance there, which is he knew his time in that office was finite. Right. And so uh, I think – Mayors maybe too often have have looked at it as that though they have four years, and so there's no need to be hurried. Um, and, and maybe it was it it was beneficial to him that he knew he was going to be out of that office in six months, and so he did something like tried to figure out what was something that had been, you know, sort of winding its way through city hall very slowly that he could pick up and pass, and. Uh, that's basically what happened with the climate action plan. Now it didn't actually get adopted until uh, Mayor Faulkner uh, a few months down the line, um, but it's very easy to imar- uh, imagine a version of San Diego history where the climate action plan never gets elevated and never gets expedited as it did uh, in the interim mayor's uh, tenure there. Well, one of the first issues he'll have to deal with is one that apparently is being punted to him, and that's the question of San Diego Gas and Electrics contract its expiring contract to have exclusive right to manage the gas and electricity lines over city streets so we all own the streets we gave san diego gas and electric 50 years ago a monopoly on on running those power lines and those gas lines that contract expires this year it's called the franchise agreement uh and the plan was to try to get that re-upped for 20 years at least that's the mayor's plan 
And this week, City Council President Georgette Gomez, who's in her now last three or four weeks of of in of you know serving in that role, has basically asked or told the mayor that she is not going to put what would be a really dramatic opening of the bids for that job, that contract, and a kind of weird auction that would take place in front of the city council. Uh, she has decided she does not want to see that happen. She wants instead the city staff to come back and present a one-year extension of SDG&E's uh, you know, option to do that and then let the future mayor and city council deal with that. Do you think mayor-elect Todd Gloria is happy to receive that in his lap or is disappointed to have to navigate all the politics involved. Just to describe briefly, on the one hand, there's a lot of environmentalists and others who want to see the city take over this responsibility, municipalize uh, the system. And there's others who, uh, of course, want to see SDG&E or these other companies continue with it. So it's a really uh, pitched battle. Do you think he's happy to get to, you know, mold this how he likes or, or, you know, upset that he's got this sandwich he has to eat i think he should be happy i like i think this this strikes me as one of those times where it's like you wanted to be mayor (laughs) you know shouldn't shouldn't it be exciting that you get to make this sort of big decision that's going to uh potentially pay off some of your priorities um if you want to hasten the electrification of the city uh move it away from from gas in new buildings or something like that here's an opportunity to do that um if you want to drive a hard bargain and increase the amount of revenue coming to the city through this sort of deal here's an opportunity to to do that uh if if you don't want to if if you look at this as a a headache that you've just been handed i kind of don't get it i mean there's always going to be something that you have to deal with that's going to be frustrating shouldn't it be uh, a welcome opportunity to to shape the city if in fact you just spent two years of your life and quite a bit of uh, you know gray hairs attempting to become mayor in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the interesting question is and this is going to be the the big uh, theme of the Gloria, you know, mayorality or whatever. He's gonna he has support from the Chamber of Commerce, from labor unions from environmentalists, from YIMBYs. Um, And this is one of those issues where they plainly have a conflict. You know, the the environmentalists, in in particular, Nicole Capretz, who, uh, you know, was his chief deputy for the Climate Action Plan back when he was interim mayor, she um, uh, wants the city to take over this whole situation, to municipalize all of these power lines and to run it itself and to have a, a you know green renewable future that they that it controls and then you have the chamber of commerce that clearly wants SDG&E to manage this system in the future uh, to continue to manage it or at least uh, you know a private operator like that to do that and and the labor unions are probably on that side too although you know they have some their own uh, diversity of opinions there. So this is one of those like classic issues where you can't make everybody happy. Are you excited about that? Are you ready to like figure out, you know, what the future should be with that? Or does that, is that a burden? Is that a problem? Is that something you're, you're, you're dreading? And um, like you said, like it's a different type of leader that would dread 
that or that would like really just embrace it. And I think at least at first he probably is going to embrace it. How long that lasts, I guess, is the question. You know who would love to be in this situation? Who? Bob Filner. (laughs) Boy, (laughs) could you imagine how excited he would be? Yeah. To have like the idea that there was a year of negotiations of something. It didn't, those negotiations didn't please many people. And he was getting a fresh start where he like already knew the pressure points where he could put a screw on somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And And he would ultimately land on like, actually, we're going to do 100% hydrogen power. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we're we're not going to do any of the things we talked about. Well, the city council is going to be different, very different. There are five new city council members, all of whom are Democrats, including two from contested seats. There's going to be an eight to one Democratic majority. And now there's another sort of fierce battle for uh, city council president, Monica Montgomery Stepp from District 4, the county or the city council, uh, southeast southeastern San Diego. She wants to take the role, has a big vision of holding law enforcement accountable, of reforming law enforcement, uh, of bringing grassroots energy to the position. On the other side, Jen Campbell coming off a big win for Measure E and the exemption of the height limit in, in the Midway area, represents the coastal district, kind of has this image she's building of what's what she got to lose on anything. She wants to be council president and clearly has the support of labor unions. And so both of them are, are having a, a bizarrely public campaign for this role. There's only nine people who get to vote on it. Uh, the city council members themselves, and yet this has become a very public kind of campaign in a way we've never seen. Uh, Andy, you wrote about this fight. Uh, what is it coming down to? Are we seeing how the votes break out, and and what's you know what's Monica Montgomery Steps uh, uh, campaign about? What's Campbell's campaign about? I think M- Montgomery Steps' campaign is is sort of about like setting a flagpost uh, on a as a, like a very progressive vision that that this is going to be uh, a, a new city council that embraces its uh the the fact that it's moving to the left and solidifies that with with who it chooses as its as its leader uh whereas Campbell is sort of uh making a mark as somebody who gets along with a lot of people people who know uh the type of person she has to work with who maybe have positive experiences working with her recently since she has been at the center of a couple big things lately. Um, and, and really I think it's, it's putting these five new city council members in a really interesting position about a vote that they have to take as their first order of business and sending a signal about what type of council member they're going to be. Um, now I don't think that anybody will like remember that vote uh, in among their constituents four years from now it's not it's not that sort of uh, sort of thing but I think it sends a signal to all the sorts of interest groups and players in that that are in and around city hall all the time about uh, what this new council is going to be like I don't know you know what it means politically to have this play out in the open the way it is but just as an observer, you know, I think about how much like stock and weight and emphasis we've put on 
Georgette Gomez being the council president over the last four years, and like there there was no window into how that really went down. Um, and so to see this now play out so publicly, I think is really fascinating and just like fun to watch. <laughs> Again, I don't know if it, who it will ultimately benefit um, making it public since we can't vote on it, but. Yeah, this has a, dis- a definite kind of jets and sharks moment where things like sort of, you know, bifurcate on the city council teams of people. Now, since it's not Democrats and Republicans so much, you know, it's it's a real like kind of network or coalition group. But it also is setting up to be um, kind of it's setting up some resentment, right? Like it, whoever uh, loses out of this. Um, if if it is so public and such, is going to be much clearer than it has in the past, where you could kind of write it off like, "Oh, I acquiesce too," you know, like yeah. I I I'm fine or whatever on this stuff. With with this kind of thing, you know, you could see the labor unions really uh, sort of you know muscling uh, their way into getting a majority for Jen Campbell, and you could see Monica Montgomery step being, you know. Again, she fought against them for her for her race for city council, and again, sort of burned uh, by that apparatus. And you wonder what that means for for decisions going forward, and how that might reflect for years after that. Yeah. So to your point on like I acquiesced, there has been a a, a tendency when these sorts of fights for who's going to be the next council president go on behind the scenes. By the time they go to council. Everybody already knows where the votes are. And so you just skip right to uh, making a motion for the person who has the votes. And people who had otherwise aligned with a different candidate end up just casting their vote for the person who's art, who it's already well known is going to win. Right. So you don't actually have to uh, enter, a, you know, a, a vote against the person who's about to become council president often because it's already been signed, sealed, and delivered behind closed doors, and and that seems like it's not going to be the case here, uh, at least potentially. Um, the other thing I'll say to your point about like what sort of tone this might set going forward is, it's not at all that clear to me that Montgomery Steps' interests in uh, criminal justice reform would be better served by her being council president. I, I think. Uh, one of the things we've seen from previous council presidents is you just end up spending a lot of your your bandwidth and a lot of your political capital on uh, what items get agendized and uh, how to organize the council's relatively finite resources as far as time on things from all nine different districts and the, the mayor's priorities that are coming through the city. Um, and if she wants to just spend all of her time on uh, putting through some sort of new budget reallocation um, or or some set of new policies that that change the the way residents interact with police she may she may have a better chance of doing that simply as the district four council member than she would as council president so just how this works it's really interesting uh, the council members and mayor get inaugurated 10 a.m December 10th so a little less than a month from now and uh, then they meet that afternoon, and that's when they'll take this vote. It's like the first vote, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be the first vote because somebody has to lead that council meeting. Yeah. And so, they actually change, change chairs right then. That's right. You know? That's right. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> so <laughs> if is. you, uh, it's nice. 
It's one of my favorite things. They aren't doing the big sort of inauguration gathering, obviously, that they normally do, big kind of speeches in front of the groups. Um, It'll be interesting to watch this year as that plays out. I still wonder how that's going to play out nationally, by the way. That could be a real nightmare if if Biden doesn't want people to get together outdoors in front of the Capitol, but then, you know, some protesters decide to go or something. Who knows how that's going to work out? But um, for us, it's just going to be a, a, a muted ceremony. And uh, if you're interested in following how the minutia of government works, that is a that is one of those moments to watch, a beginning of a new chapter. Uh, the council president, new mayor, everybody. Fascinating. Well, speaking of a different government, the county of San Diego, of course, the county covers the whole region of San Diego and has five county supervisors. And now three of them are new and three of them uh, are Democrats. And that means that there is now a three to two Democratic majority on the county board of supervisors. We've been talking about this for a while, about how big of a vote District 3 of the county supervisor race would be. Uh, it turned out to not be a nail-biter at all. Tara Lawson-Reamer pummeled uh, the incumbent Kristen Gaspar, won easily, and now is uh, now there's three Democrats. Nora Vargas, first Latina on the county board of supervisors, and then, of course, the existing county supervisor, Nathan Fletcher, who hopes, I think, to be the chairperson with those two other votes. And so that means, uh, you know, they have a big plan. They want to spend a lot of money on behavioral health, on mental health, on homelessness. Uh, they want to uh, challenge the the sheriff's office to, you know, account for its budget better, to maybe reform using budgetary pressures. Uh, more on that in a minute. But I, I think this is a this is a real moment of expectations. You know, I think you and I, uh, you, we remember three years ago or whatever when the San Diego City Council became a supermajority of Democrats, and we're like, oh, they're going to do all this big Democratic stuff, and what did they do? Anything? Was there a single thing? <laughs> there's a uh, there's a headline kicking around out there, uh, on over top of a story bylined by one Andrew Keats that says uh, that made the argument that uh, the Democratic supermajority on the city council didn't matter at all. And yeah, uh, it's aged okay. I got dunked on. I, I got dunked. <laughs> I got dunked on by uh, by the. Chris Reed at the UT editorial board and Dave Rowland at the who was at City Beat at the time for that take and uh, I think it worked out okay. What was uh, your take? Was look they got a super majority but they're not going to do anything with it. Why? I don't even remember what the take was. Frankly. <laughs> I have no memory. I just remember thinking, oh boy, I'm a little bit out on this limb here. I hope <laughs> it turned out to be okay. I think the county board has some things working and it's favor and then they also have some things holding it back so the county board obviously doesn't have to contend with a potential mayoral veto so that's a win so they don't you know they they only have to get each other on board and not you know potentially enough of their colleagues to override something um, except in the except in the instances of votes that require four votes which are there well, are, sure yeah which when there the are rules some. are different <laughs> yeah yeah right. um but then if you think about, you know, who their other colleagues um, are, the council, I would say, you know, Chris Kate and Mark Kersey are much different Republicans than Jim Desmond and potentially Joel Anderson, who seem much more conservative. I mean, Mark Kersey is not even a Republican anymore. Um, 
And so there seems to be like a much bigger ideological barrier there, mm-hmm. um, maybe less likely to compromise or agree on certain things. So I think it's fascinating. I think that's a very good point. I think it's also, I, I think the, the instructive part of the city council for the county board of supervisors comes just from the fact that the margin only matters if all of the votes that you're counting agree on everything. Um, or if they can work together well enough to put together a shared uh, agenda. And I think what we have seen from the city council is that one is not always true. The, the They don't always agree on everything. So for instance, your six vote supermajority didn't matter when Vivian Moreno didn't agree with council president Georgette Gomez's push for inclusionary housing and therefore they didn't have a veto-proof supermajority because they lost that one vote. Similarly, it didn't matter when Barbara Bree was not willing to go along with any sort of budget changes for SDPD this summer. You no longer had a supermajority and therefore you couldn't do the vote that you were being urged. You, you couldn't take the vote you were being urged to take. Um, and, and likewise, um, it doesn't seem like they've always all been on the same page about what they wanted to do as a city. And so... Um, your ability to overcome the strong mayor form of government is sort of reliant on the fact that you, as six city council members, are able to link arms and walk in lockstep together. Um, I think you're right that the county is a slightly different apparatus and that there, there's no mayor to overcome. The The institution to overcome there is is the county itself, the county that has a long history of being a very strong staff-driven organization that has sort of an institutional prerogative. And for them to overcome that institutional prerogative, I think they'll need largely the same thing, which is to have those three votes aligned on most or all of the time and to have a shared set of priorities. And it's a lot easier to make the case that that that's how things are going to be during an election than it is during the ensuing four years when when things can sometimes get messy. Yeah, so much of the county is uh not pass through. I think that's too simple of a way to put it. But, you know, a big part of what the county does is administer federal and state both benefits and regulations and stuff like that. They are basically the state representative for San Diego County. Now, on the other hand, they do manage a bunch of libraries. They manage some land use and police issues in in unincorporated areas. They're, you know, the mayor of some unincorporated areas basically is the county uh, so there is some direct uh, decision making and land use decisions like should we be allowed to build buildings here or there or whatever. Those are big decisions that are different than the pastures they have to manage. But then uh, that said, you know, so much of it is is managed by this just giant bureaucracy that is managed itself by the chief administrative officer, Helen. And she's going to, you know, she her job is dependent on making sure that three members of the county board of supervisors likes her at all times. And that if it gets to a third who doesn't, uh, then, you know, she might lose her job. That's how these city manager situations work. And so she will have to switch to make sure these three in particular are happy with what she's doing. But, you know, dealing with this sort of kind of this inertia, this gigantic bureaucratic inertia of an organization like that. And, you know, 
where everything, even small things like adjusting compensation of employees and stuff can have massive reverberations and changes. So it's uh, it's not going to be easy for them to change a lot. The only thing I point to is there there were a lot of things that happened over the last two years with uh, before the pandemic with Nathan Fletcher's entry onto the board. You know, he came on, he got two supervisors to support him on a number of things that they never would have done before. So it could be, you know, everything from like opening a place for um, asylum seekers to stay while they were waiting to get processed uh, here to, um, you know, investing more in, in affordable housing and stuff like that. So um, we'll see uh, how fast it works and, and, and how much it gets slowed down as well. Uh, one thing that we watched, you know, they they do want to force the sheriff to try to change his ways, you know, make sure that uh, deaths go down within county jails, stuff like that. The county board of supervisors sets the budget for the sheriff. But Mayashri Krishna did a great story this week about how the sheriff gets to operate how he would like. And if they try to use their budgetary pressures to force him to operate in a different way, he can come back and say that's illegal. Yeah, I thought it was a fantastic story by Maya simply because uh, I did not know that this was the case. Perhaps I should have, but I was. it was entirely news to me how much general autonomy the sheriff has, even over his budget. Yeah, and it's, you know, setting up this fascinating question, um, as she mentioned, other places are dealing with this sort of issue of how much accountability there is between the board and the sheriff, uh, namely Los Angeles. Um, This idea of whether it's actually more accountable to have the sheriff be an appointed position, which seems counterintuitive, you know, the the voters elect the sheriff, um, he or she is accountable to the voters. um, And now you're having some boards argue that it might be a better system for them only to be appointed and to have kind of more control um, if they start, you know, making decisions or that there are a lot of public safety outcomes that uh, people don't agree with that you can take some actions against them other than waiting until they're up for re-election. Yeah. We got a preview of this uh, sort of coming standoff perhaps when Sheriff Bill Gore he proposed that they outsource the responsibility of providing health care within county jails. And and then Supervisor Fletcher came back and said, nah, how about we have our own health and human services administer that health care within jails? Uh, and then Gore ended up sending him a letter saying, hey, uh, you don't get to influence this. Uh, Case law is very clear that the board not only has no duty, but no right to control the operation of jails. As such, the board cannot oversee uh, operations or set policy. What's interesting to me then, why was he proposing it to the board of supervisors then? Why didn't he just do it? Do you know what I mean? Like one of the things when you look back at Filner's uh, term as mayor of San Diego, basically they would hand him a document and say, you have to sign this. And he would say, well, then why do I have to sign it? You know what I mean? Like if it's, if I have to sign it, then why do I, what, you know, what's my actual agency in putting my signature down? I'm not going to sign it and tell me, you know, I'm going to try to get something different out of it. I think the same thing here. Like if Bill Gore proposes to the County Board of Supervisors this, this deal and, and then he says, but you have to do it. Well, why do they have to review it then? Obviously, they don't have to do it. 
yeah, very often the answer to your question is, because, sir, no one has ever made us think about this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'd prefer if you hadn't. Yeah. The exactly. system does not stand up to scrutiny, pal. Yeah. Well, um, and that's and that's an exact example of the kind of thing that in the previous Board of Supervisors you never would have heard about because it never would have been controversial. It never would have attracted media attention. And thus, it would have been one of the many things the county board did without without much noise and the kind of thing we might hear more about as it becomes contentious. Let me add one other thing that's different than what we've been talking about, which is uh, it's not all that clear that San Diego like has enough democratic staffers to staff all of these offices. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, you, you point. know, like, yeah. like, you know, there, you can build experience in, nonprofit groups and that's what and and council offices that that put you in a good position to to be elevated to one thing or another but just democrats took over two council offices the mayor's office and two supervisorial offices the number of just jobs out there for mid-career democratic professionals in in local government right now are probably just more than the supply of staffers are so there's sort of like a a wanted sign you know a help wanted sign hanging outside the, the county of San Diego. I have a prediction on that. I bet you that many of the people in the mayor's office from Kevin Faulkner's team stay there, I, at least temporarily. I, I bet there's a big portion of of people that, you know, uh, the new mayor, he obviously wants his top people involved, but if you have some, you know, district rep or uh, somebody else, you might just keep them on if they've been if they've been doing all right. That that's a that's an interesting point. Uh, let me ask you this, Andy. I got asked this when I was making a presentation earlier, and I thought it was a great question. We talked a lot about how one of the big winners in this was Hassan Akrata, the executive director of Sandy, San Diego Association of Governments. He has this giant plan to make it as easy to get around San Diego using public transportation as it is to get around a car. Knowing how hard that is right now, that's how ambitious and expensive what he's described is. We, we in many ways, saw this election as a referendum on that because there were so many posts that could have made it hard for him to pull something like this off. Uh, the county board of supervisors went his way. The mayor's office went his way. Everything went his way except for maybe Escondido or something. But like basically everything. Re- uh, Rebecca Jones reelected in San Marcos. Right. Oh. So, uh, but frankly, he's in, as he's got. If any, if any of this was a referendum on him, he won. However, somebody asked me like, "Is it really possible that he's going to have the momentum pull this off?" And I and I thought like. Actually, it doesn't seem that easy. It seems like he could still have a lot of trouble pulling off his grand transportation vision. What's your read on where we're at with that? I suspect we're going to be a few weeks away from discussion about a 2022 ballot measure that will begin in earnest very soon. And that the, quest, the debate around that will be the answer to your question. It will get 56% of the vote, right? <laughs> Well, which is why maybe you don't do it through Sandag and you do it as a consortium of small businesses and environmental groups who collect signatures ah. to qualify for the ballot and based, only need 50%. Based on this theory that the, the hotel tax is now working through that citizens initiative do not need two thirds of the vote. 
This is purely hypothetical, of course. Purely. Thank you. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see how that goes, but that was one of the results uh, of the election. Uh, I had asked this, too, the other day, and I was, I was unsure how to answer. It was about uh, anything that really surprised me, and I couldn't think of anything in the ballot results that really surprised me. Now, we still are waiting. I got one. I got one. I got one. All right. Let's hear. Did you see how many people voted against Richard Bailey in Coronado for mayor? Zero? Like like sixty. <laughs> there was and there was a time like well into counting when it was zero, but the 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 guy who I mean, I've I've just never seen anybody win as convincingly as Richard Bailey did in Coronado. <laughs> it's insane. We're still waiting to see who that sort of fourth county supervisor uh, is or third uh, district two. Steve Voss had a lead in the initial results, but it's gotten whittled away slowly by Joel Anderson, who now has an 80-vote lead out of 300,000 votes cast. Uh, That could be interesting. Joel Anderson has this sort of brand of working with Democrats on things that he's tried to cultivate, although he is a very conservative individual, um, uh, you know, one of the first to endorse Trump, uh, hostile to to, uh, same-sex marriage, all kinds of things that uh, he stood against for a while. But... um, Wow, uh, that that came down, and then and then I guess another one. I was surprised that Todd Gloria won by as much as he did. Um, you know, I thought it'd be closer, but not not really else. Anything for you, Sarah? I guess some of the margins were surprising. I mean, we had polling info that showed Tara Lawson Reamer winning big, but sh- boy, did did she win big? And then, you know, I'm a little surprised that Donald Trump isn't the president. I'm I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's fair yeah um oh i think maybe surprise isn't the right word but notable oceanside mayor esther sanchez uh yeah was that a- was a hard one because there was just no way really to know who was winning there were just so many so many people, people and a lot of them you know have been around oceanside politics for a long time and so I, you're right that was a surprising one Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even close. It was not close. No, it was close not close at all. at all. She won by a lot. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had like talked to people in the lead up to it who were sort of, uh, you know, frustrated that they didn't see enough activity on Esther Sanchez's behalf. Uh, and it's one of, that's one of those things where you have to kind of defer to people who are there because I, I, you know, I, I don't live in Oceanside. I don't know what voters are seeing there. I don't see what's in their mailboxes or yard signs or whatever. Um, and so when I heard that, I thought, oh, okay, that, that's interesting. And then she won by a not close margin at all. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's, uh, we finally have a complete picture of the results, mostly a few things up and down, but um, it was great to finally round that out. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded, at least one-third of which, in my garage in San Diego in Ocean Beach. Keep up with all of our big stories and political coverage with The Morning Report. Get it at vosd.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Sarah Libby is the Managing Editor. This show is produced by Nate John. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.